Well, good morning <clears throat> to each of you. It's a blessing to be here with you. It's always good to come back to Myerstown here, see familiar faces, and just want to bring you greetings from Waterworks this morning. That's all Zach was sharing at Waterworks. They were trading places this morning, but it's good to be with you, and I trust that God will speak to each one of us as we look into his word this morning. So this morning, I'd like to think about the subject of representation. So what does it mean to represent something or someone? And I was thinking about this. I thought of the Olympics. Every four years, many athletes get together and they compete in different events. And each one of those athletes is representing a country. And sometimes there's national pride involved, you know, which country won the most gold medals and so forth. But, but there's uh, some national pride. They're representing their country. Ambassadors. You know, each country has ambassadors that go abroad into other countries and they represent their home country. It's interests abroad. That's, that's what they're supposed to do, represent. And another side of this as well, we can have this with, with families. And young people maybe sometimes hear the phrase, remember who you are. And I remember when I was a young boy, I was, I forget how old I was, pretty young. Standard procedure for Sunday morning was mom would uh, comb all of our hair, all, all of us boys, and uh, we would get uh, nice for church and I remember the one one time I don't know why this stands out in my mind but I remember saying to my mom just just don't worry about it I I don't care I'll be fine you don't have to worry about me um, I don't want my hair combed and I remember what she said she said no that's that's not how we do things because if you go to church all disheveled and, and unkept that's going to reflect back on me so we're not going to do that. And mom, I, I understand now. <laughs> I have children of my own, and I, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> representing. I was representing a family. So this morning, I want to think about the representation that we are called to as Christians. And the title of the message this morning is Bearing God's Name. What are we representing, and are we doing a good job at representing uh, what we are called to? So I see this as a thread that runs through the Bible. It, it shows up all over the place. And as I was studying and, and thinking about it, I, I came across this theme a lot more than I thought. So I'd like to, to share some of that with you this morning. And, and as always, there's so much more that could be said on this topic, I'll only be able to scratch the surface. Um, I want to start by looking at a command that's given in the Bible, and it's actually more of a warning. So it comes from the, the Ten Commandments. So you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 to start, and we're going to be looking at the third commandment. And I think this this third commandment is is misunderstood sometimes, or, or maybe 
understood in a shallow way. There's a deeper meaning than we give it a lot of times. And I remember the first time I heard this uh, idea was out in South Dakota. We had, there was a, it wasn't our group, but there was a visiting group coming in town and they wanted a place to share a service. So I allowed them to use our church building and I figured I should probably go to this service and see what, what kind of service they're gonna be having. And uh, I went and this one Baptist preacher stood up and he starts talking about taking God's name in vain. And he said, you know, that is so much more than not cursing. Um, it's in the way that we live. We're representing God. And I heard that and I thought, you know what, he is so right. And I heard a couple more details from a Bible scholar or, or uh, you know, somebody laying this, this idea out in a scholarly way, Carmen Imes. I'm going to be referencing some of her work this morning. But I'll start with Exodus chapter 20, and I won't read all of them. I'll just go right to the third command, which is, which is found in verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, he, he says, God is saying, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So a lot of times, I think we read that verse, we hear it, and we just assume that it's talking about speech. And that's more so the understanding that I had when I was growing up. Don't say God's name in a disrespectful way. You don't curse, you don't uh, use profanity. The idea of profanity is taking something that is high and bringing it low. You're profaning it. You're making it common. So I think it includes this, but at the same time, it goes a lot deeper than just that. So the text itself doesn't actually specifically mention speech. It talks about taking a name. You're not supposed to take the name of the Lord in vain. So the Hebrew word for take is nasa, and I just did a search for where all that word was used, how it's translated, and actually most times it's translated to lift or to bear something. The priests were bearing something, and that's uh, most times how it's translated. Um, so you can think about it in that way. It's a warning against bearing God's name in vain or to no effect, you could say. And I think another way you could say this, to, to paraphrase it, is basically don't misrepresent God. Don't live in a way that brings shame to God's name. So I'd like to think a little bit about the setting here and the context. Who was this given to? So this, this was given to the Israelites right after they were taken out of Egypt, uh, the Exodus story. We find that in the beginning of the book of Exodus here. God delivered them out of bondage into freedom, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, which is where this takes place. And God, this is where God sets up a covenant with his people. And it's, it's an agreement. And really, it's a continuation of God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, you look at what God told Abraham. He said, I'm choosing you and your descendants, and, and basically, if I can paraphrase, he said, you're gonna carry my blessing into the world, 
all nations will be blessed through you and your family. You can carry the story forward to Exodus here, and we see God following through. He delivered his people, and he brought them into freedom, and it's at Sinai here that he is reaffirming his commitment, and uh, he's entering into a covenant with them, and just one chapter before we can see a little bit of what that is. Uh, Turn back a page to chapter 19. I'll read verses 4 through 6. Shows a little bit of the the introduction to this covenant here. God says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So God is promising to hold Israel as a treasured possession. If they are willing to obey, there is a condition, if you will obey my voice, And several verses later, verse 8, we see the Israelites responding. Yes, all that the Lord has said, we will do. They're agreeing. We're in. So we can think of this as God choosing Israel as his own people in order to be his representatives to the world. I'd like to turn to one more uh, passage in Numbers, chapter 6. Thinking of the blessing of the high priest that was to be given. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. I'll read verses 22 through 27. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So here in this passage, we see that God is putting his name on his people. This is the people of Israel. He's putting his name or his mark on them. So we, we're probably familiar with, with this first part, the blessing. We've probably heard it before. We sing the song sometimes uh, based on this passage. But this, this uh, last verse, verse 27, talks about God putting his name on them. So the nation of Israel was bearing or carrying God's name. So they have this, this warning in the Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment, don't bear my name in vain, to no effect. So I'd like to think about why God would put his name on Israel. And to answer that, I think we can think about why anyone puts a a name on anything, because we we do this as well. We name things, and uh, I get on the, the job site different times with other contractors, and they're bringing their tools in, and Oftentimes, what I'll see on tools is a business name or maybe an individual's name. And it's, it's pretty clear the reason why you would name your tools so that there's no confusion. You know, if there's any, ever, ever any question, you know, you can just point at the name, well, that one's, that one's mine. 
we claim ownership by putting our name on things. And I think God was doing the same thing here. God was putting his name on his people. And in that way, he was claiming ownership. He's marking them. These people are mine, and they are set apart. And, and you know, that's what holy means, to be set apart. Deuteronomy 7, 6, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read this uh, similar verse to the others I read. He said, Moses is saying, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. So here again, we see this idea of ownership. And of course, it's connected with the covenant that was made, obedience. It was an agreement. Yes, you are my people, but you need to obey. And I think we need to understand why God chooses people. I know for myself, I struggled to understand, wrap my mind around election and God choosing. It almost seems unfair that God would just separate a people and say, you know, these are my people and the rest of you over there, you know, you're sorry, you're not chosen. Um, just uh, these are my people over here. And I think that's a misunderstanding of election and, and choosing. The God is choosing Israel. Um, it's, you think about it in this idea of representation. God is choosing his people to represent him. It's like he says to Abraham, I'm giving you this blessing, and this blessing is going to reach all families of the earth. This is going to get bigger. It's not limited to, to just them. And, and you see examples of that through the Old Testament of outsiders coming in and joining through their faith in the God of Israel. So God choosing Israel. And I'd like to think a little bit of, of how it went. So how did it go? This was the covenant. This was the agreement that God made. They agreed to it. Were they faithful in representing their God, bearing his name? Sometimes they were, but at the same time, there were many examples of failure as well, where God's name was brought low and his name was profaned. So it's thinking a little bit about some good examples I had to think about people who referenced God's name. A couple that came to my mind is Joshua. You see his concern for God's name after the battle of Ai. They, they lost this battle, and Joshua was just praying, and he says, God, what will you do for your great name? He was concerned about God's reputation. And David, thinking about David, a man after God's own heart, the Psalms that he wrote, this is written all over the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 34. He says, uh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name. Speaking of wanting to lift up God's name. And I had to think of Solomon and his dedication prayer for the temple. There was a phrase that stood out in my mind as he's praying, and he's talking about how God's great name is going to be spread all over the earth. Because of this, this uh, temple, people are going to come because of this temple and they're going to pray. Um, 
and has had to think of this idea of a house of God drawing in people from all over the world. It's a beautiful picture. I think we can apply that today as well. And I think this is exactly what God wanted. He wanted his people to make his name so great and so special that other people would come and join themselves with God's people. And there's other examples that that we could look at. I'd like to look at one verse from Hebrews 11. It's thinking about uh, Old Testament examples. And we know Hebrews 11 as the faith chapter, the faith hall of fame, you might say. And it lists out different people who exemplified true faith in God. And it was, it was shown by the, the lives that they lived, the example that they gave. And I'd like to read verse 16. You know, I know it's hard to break in the middle. There's a lot of other good stuff as well. But I'd like to pull out one phrase from verse 16. It says, but now they desire a better country that is and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And that phrase I want to zero in on is God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a testimony to have. God is proud to claim you as one of his own when he looks down on the world and he says, yes, that one's mine right there. What a challenge. And there's, there's a lot of challenges in Hebrews 11 that we could, could think about. I had to think of the testimony of Job. I, you know, it's always amazing. Think of the life of Job. That's, that's what God did for Job. He's talking to Satan and he says, hey, did you notice Job? That's, that's, he's mine. That's my guy. Testimony of God claiming you as his own. But you know, sometimes it, it went the other way. And the conduct of God's people instead brought shame to God's name. And that's what happened to Israel. They had those times of faithfulness. There were good, there were good uh, examples that we can look at. But as a whole, Israel fell further and further from this agreement, from the covenant. And they profaned God's name. They brought it low. So I'd like to read from Ezekiel chapter 36, thinking of this thought. Several verses from Ezekiel 36. So Ezekiel was a prophet late in Israel's history. And it was uh, right about the time of the exile. And he was actually writing from Babylon. He was part of the, the group of exiles that went over. And in Ezekiel, we see a promise of restoration. So there's this uh, gradual turning away and then exile. But Ezekiel promises restoration and renewal. I'll start at verse 16, Ezekiel 36, 16. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood they had shed, 
upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through their countries according to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord, and they're gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. So he's referencing Israel's poor track record. They fell further and further to the point where they were exiled, driven out of the land because they defiled it. They profaned God's name. And it was, it was even among the heathen. It says in verse 20, when they came to the heathen, these, these people, the heathen are saying, well, these are God's people. And he drove them out of the land. And that was the reason for their exile. The reason they were taken out is because they had defiled it and got so far from this covenant. But at the same time, he gives this promise of renewal. And in verse 21, he says, I had pity for my holy name. Concern. He was concerned about his name, his reputation. And God says that he's going to sanctify. Verse 23, is going to sanctify or vindicate his name. He's going to make it holy again. And as a result of this vindication, the nations will know who God is because of his name being made holy in his people. The end of verse 23, the heathen shall know that I am the Lord when I should be sanctified in you before their eyes. So God is jealous for his name. And he desires his people to make his name holy. There's this promise of, of restoration. So what about us? This was a look at the Old Testament, people of Israel, and what God called them to and the example that they gave to us in, in bearing God's name and what happened to them. But what about us? In our setting today, is this true for us? And the question is, are we bearing God's name? And I think the answer to that question should be evident. Yes, we are. And first and foremost, in the name that we take of Christian, little Christ, or one who imitates Christ. So in that sense, yes, we have the name of Christ on our lives. And if you want to dig further into that idea, you can look at Amos, Amos chapter 9, uh, verse 12. He talks about the Gentiles who are called by my name. And he looks at the, the tabernacle of, of David. It's broken, but it's going to be rebuilt, repaired. And this... Uh, vision of God's people is going to include the Gentiles, those people who, who bear his name. This, this is growing and expanding. 
do we find this same idea of faithfully bearing God's name in the New Testament? And I think it'd be interesting to open it up and see what all references you might think of. I know as I was uh, studying this, there's a couple that came to my mind, and then I thought of a couple more, and then, then there was more, and soon you just see it all over the place. It's definitely there, and I'm sure there's ones that I haven't even thought of as well. This idea that's communicated in the third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We're God's people, and therefore we have a call to holy living. It affects the way that we live and interact with others. We're different because we're representing a different kingdom. So I'll just go through a couple of these references here. Uh, you don't have to turn to these. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And we know what an ambassador is, a representative in a foreign country. We are representing Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 1, says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. There's a calling that we have, a vocation. Are we walking worthy of that vocation, living up to that calling? 2 Timothy 2.19, let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There's a separation. This is not who we are. We separate ourselves. Philippians 2, verse 15. Actually, I didn't write this one down. Philippians 2, 15. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Sons of God, without rebuke, blameless. And he said, we're shining as lights. We're, we're representatives of God. And we just heard one this morning in Romans 6. Whose servants are you? So the passage I'd like to focus on for the rest of the time here is 1 Peter chapter 2. And you can turn there with me. I'll read a couple verses from 1 Peter 2. And I think this really pinpoints the idea of bearing God's name faithfully. So 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll start at verse 9, read through verse 12, and he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. I'll stop there. So we see Peter is basically quoting from some of these Old Testament passages that I referenced this morning about Israel being a chosen nation, Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 19, 
being God's chosen treasure, peculiar treasure. And he says, you are that chosen generation and holy nation, peculiar people, for the purpose of, or so that you can show forth the praises of God. That's why we're chosen. You know, it's the same reason that Israel was chosen as well. And you look at who, who he's writing to here, it's, he's writing to the church. It's elect according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the Spirit. So Peter is, is repurposing um, this Old Testament language of a holy nation and directing it at the church. It's Peter's way of exhorting the believers to faithfully bear God's name in a way that brings praise to God. You look at verse 10. In times past, you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Before you were outside, but you have been brought in, grafted in to the family of God. And because of that, this is how you have to act. And you read on in his letter, you can see the practical applications that he gives, some practical things. This is how the people of God act. Verse 11, he calls us strangers and pilgrims, using the language of Hebrews 11, foreigners. We're in a foreign land as ambassadors. We're representing our king, strangers and pilgrims. And because of that, we abstain from fleshly lusts. There's things that we separate from. We don't indulge every desire that we have because we're representing someone. Verse 12, he talks about our conversation. It's, it's not referring just to things we talk about, but our conduct and our behavior. How you behave yourself, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, those who are outside. <clears throat> and uh, it's, we live in such a way that the Gentiles and the unbelievers around us take notice. They're noticing our, our conduct. It's honest. He says it's honest conduct. The story is told of the Chinese communist government. I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but they commissioned an author to write a biography about Hudson Taylor. And obviously coming from the Chinese government, the atheist government, it was intended to portray Hudson in a negative light and kind of denigrate his reputation that he had there, his notoriety as a Christian missionary. They were going to set the record straight, they thought. And this author, on his assignment, was studying into Hudson Taylor's life and is looking at his, his uh, testimony. And he saw the incredible character that Hudson Taylor displayed. And as he was studying this and just seeing more and more of who Hudson Taylor really was, he, he couldn't continue with a clear conscience on his, his task that he had. And he ended up resigning his commission. He, he didn't finish his book and he ended up becoming a Christian himself. And this was because of the testimony of Hudson Taylor. So does it always happen this way? No. Verse 12, we see again that they, it says they speak against you as evildoers. And we might have heard some things about directed at Christians, you know, evildoers. Um, but really, 
it's our honest conduct that really speaks to them. They're, they're, they're going to glorify God, it says. It's not the only story of people observing a Christian and the character and, and self-sacrifice that, that uh, some Christians portray and being moved to repentance themselves. It does happen. <clears throat> so how can we give glory to God by our conduct? We had a winter Bible school topic on integrity, looking at just complete honesty the whole way through. Is that true of us? Are we living lives honestly, just like Peter says, lives of integrity? We live in a world where integrity and honesty are not common. That's, that's not practice. It's more so you just do what you can get away with. Are we being faithful to maintain integrity? If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you can see what Jesus calls us to. And I know some people would say, you know, the Sermon on the Mount's for a, a different age. We can't possibly attain to that. We're living on a lower level. But no, this, this is what God is calling us to. This is the kingdom of God. This is how it's represented through the Sermon on the Mount and living it out. That's what it means to represent God's kingdom. And if it seems foreign to us, it's because it is. It's a different kingdom. When we live lives of integrity and obedience, it speaks to people. And that's what God is looking for. And that's what he talks about when he, he talks of sanctifying his name. And you know, we say that in the Lord's Prayer as well. We say, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. Are we making God's name holy with our lives? So I'd like to close with two different contrasting images that are given in Revelation. Revelation chapters 13 and 14, we see there's two different names mentioned. And you can turn there if you'd like. Revelation 13 is probably one of the more well-known chapters of the Bible, or, or of Revelation, rather. Because it talks about the, the beast and the mark of the beast. And I will admit up front, there's a lot that I don't know about the book of Revelation. And I wish I had more clarity on how to understand everything that we read in Revelation. There's, there's a, a lot going on here, and I don't intend to do an exposition on Revelation chapter 13 here. But as I was thinking about this theme of bearing God's name, I had to think about what it says in, in Revelation 13 and uh, the mark of the beast. And I know there's a lot of ideas about the mark of the beast, what it is, what it might be. Um, but when you look at the text, uh, and I'd like, I'd like to read verses 16 and 17 from Revelation 13. And just for context, there's, there's two beasts of Revelation 13. And the first beast comes from the sea, the second beast from the earth, and the second beast is causing people to worship the first beast. And all these things that he does towards the end of the chapter, we see these things that uh, the second beast is doing. And verse 16 uh, talks about the beast as well, what he's doing. So the beast, verse 16, causes all 
both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So as, as I read that, and, and I, I went to some other translations to get some clarity, I think we all know that King James can be hard to understand sometimes. There's a wording that's a little bit different than we might say. So I, I'd like to read this in the ESV, and it renders it just a little bit differently, and I think it adds some clarity to uh, particularly verse 17. ESV says, No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. And I think that adds a little clarity, because King James, the way it's written, makes it sound like it's three different options. You can either have the mark or the name, or the number. The ESV, I think, clarifies that. It says no one can have the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And what's the number? I don't know. But it's connected to the name in some way. It's the number of his name. So really, the central point is the name of the beast. And so I was thinking about this, this whole topic of, of bearing someone's name I think this is basically asking the question of whose are you and who do you belong to? Who are you representing? Whose name is on your life? This mark is, is uh, the name of the beast. I'm thinking again of ownership. Who's claiming ownership? And the passage is looking ahead to a time when in order to participate in the economy you're going to have to somehow be identified with the beast have his name on your life. So there is another name that we can bear. And then there's, there's this contrasting image that's given in chapter 14. So we're, we're well familiar with that. End of Revelation 13, Mark of the Beast. There's another image given. And I can just picture John is looking over on this side at the beast and what all the beast is doing. This mark that he's, he's uh, causing people to receive and he looks over here, and I'd like to read chapter 14, verse 1. He says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So here we see 144,000 with not the name of the beast, but God's name written on their foreheads. And these are the ones who are bearing God's name. It's written on their forehead. And I think these two images are connected. Some people are bearing the name of the beast. And some people are bearing God's name, their identity. Who's claiming ownership on your life? So whose name are we bearing? Whose name are you bearing? And if you have been called by God and received his salvation, God has a claim of ownership on your life and his name is on you and there's a life of obedience that's expected there's a calling that we need to live up to to walk worthy of and as we read through the New Testament we can see what that is holy living humility forgiveness love abstaining from fleshly lusts departing from iniquity and so much more 
And it's when we can live that out that we bring glory to God's name and we hallow his name, make his name great. I'd like to close with an illustration that John Piper gives. He gives a contrast between a microscope and a telescope. So both of those are instruments that enlarge things. If you think about a microscope, it's taking something that's very small, almost imperceptible, and enlarging it so that you can see it. But a telescope, in contrast, is something that takes something that is very big, it's just so far away, and it makes it appear the way it really is. And you know, the, the comparison to us is that we, we're not microscopes. We're not taking something that's small and making it big. We're taking something that is already very big, God's name, and we're magnifying it for what it really is. So my challenge this morning is for each one of us to consider, am I bearing God's name faithfully? Am I showing to others by my conduct who God is? And I believe the words of the third commandment still reach us today. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. May God give us wisdom and strength to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the examples that you've given in your word illustrations for us to learn from. And I pray that we could take to heart this idea of representing you faithfully. I pray that each one of us here could have strength to do just that, to live holy lives and to represent you faithfully to the world around us. As they look on, would they behold our holy living and help us to make your name great. I pray your blessing on each one here. Would you go with us throughout the week? Help us to be faithful wherever we're at. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jupiter.